From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, now in our 20th year on the air and still the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. Let me welcome you to the Crossroads of History. Over the 20 years of our program, this is the sixth time a presidential election has come up. Tonight we go back to the 2004 programs. One was on liberalism, the other conservatism. As you listen, you may hear similarities as well as major differences from liberal and conservative platforms in today's cycle. You will hear from conservative Priscilla Smith, Gilbert Baker, and Bob Blunt, as well as liberals Neil Selly, H.L. Moody, and my very special guest, former senator and 1972 presidential candidate George McGovern. So stay with us for this look back to the 2004 generational perspectives on liberalism and conservatism right here after the news. Hi everyone and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, where this evening we look back to the 2004 election cycle comparing liberalism and conservatism. As we approach this upcoming election, it's a great time to compare our present views with the past to see where we may have changed or stayed the same. First we'll hear from conservatives Priscilla Smith, Gilbert Baker, and Bob Blunt, and then liberals Neil Selly, H.L. Moody, and my very special guest, former Senator and 1972 presidential candidate, George McGovern. I hope you enjoy this look back to the 2004 election cycle. We're talking today about conservatism. And my guest with me today here in the studio, we have Priscilla Smith. And you may have heard her if you watched the Republican convention in August. Uh, she spoke at the convention. She won the MTV's Choose or Lose contest and was able to give a, uh, her essay at the uh, convention. Glad to have her with us. She's 20. Are you still 20, Prince Ellen? I turned 21 on Tuesday. Okay. We want to get it right. Yes, sir. She's also the chairman of District 4 for the Arkansas College Republicans. She's the youngest member of the African Americans for Bush. Also, she's the senior class president and uh, in 2001, the governors of Girl State, and she was an honors graduate from Wynn High School. That's talking. That's a lot to be done in the younger generation already, there, Princella. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, with us also for the uh, middle generation. Speaking from that generation, another person you probably have heard around the state here is Senator Gilbert Baker. He's a Republican from the District 30 in Conway. Been there for four years, but before that, he taught at UEA, UCA for 22 years. And then uh, also in the uh, older generation, Bob Blunt. He's with us here. He's a retired uh, individual who uh, was born and raised in this area. He's 23 years in the Army. And he's been in the public relations, but more importantly, he's been active in the Republican Party for a number of years. But I want to begin first with you, Bob Blunt, the older generation uh, conservatism. Then I, I want to back away from the, the rhetoric that we hear in this election cycle. Here, I want to get more into the, the philosophy of conservatism and talk about what makes a person a conservative. So when you were a young man, um, people in your generation, what was conservatism like then? When I was really young... Conservative was the party of Winston Churchill in England. <laughs> we didn't talk about conservative and liberal in those days. As I was growing up and in my younger days, it was communism and fascism and progressivism. You didn't hear so much conversation about conservatism and liberalism. In my mind, if I had to define the conservatism, it's a matter of values. It's a matter of core values that uh, stem uh, from certain established rights and wrongs in life in an outlook. Now, was this conservatism a, a kind of a broad-based thing amongst the other, your peers at that time? Were a lot of people your age following that same sort of train of thought? 
Well, as, as in the younger years, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't classify myself so much as a conservative. I think as we get older, we take a longer view of things, and we begin to consider consequences and results of our actions and uh, and decisions that we make. And as a consequence of that, I think I became more conservative, and and I think a lot of a lot of my peers are the same same thing. Well, when did you notice that being uh, a change from those younger thoughts that may, you may have called liberal uh, into the more conservative, which turned into your political thoughts? When when did you notice that start to happen? I, I believe as I matured and got a little bit older and began to deal with life, uh, with the raising a family and what that meant, imparting values to children. And what years would this have been? Oh, in the early 60s. Early 60s. Mm-hmm. And then you pretty much just progressed in, in your conservative thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly so after about 1964. I read Barry Goldwater's book, Conscience of a Conservative. And uh, in my mind, that was kind of the, the beginning point for conservatism, political conservatism in the United States, which resulted in the 1994 uh, successes of the conservative Congress. And I think that that's a whole trend that's begun, and it'll probably grow. Well, were there early political points that were conservative points as opposed to the liberal points uh, that you recall? Oh, more more on the from a perspective of uh, taxes, efforts in Congress to create certain programs that started me to really thinking and having to make decisions. Up until that time, up until that point, I didn't have to make decisions. You know, 19, 20, 25 years later, you don't have to make decisions. You just kind of take life as it comes and enjoy it. Were there uh, social conservative issues uh, of those earlier years that, that kept you into the more, conservative area? More of a reaction, more of a reaction with the, with the Johnson years, with the Johnson years, uh, the events. I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, through the mid-60s, and I saw what happened there uh, with the riots and that sort of thing. I saw Washington burn in 1968, was it? Those kinds of things really pushed me really pushed me to the conservative end. Well, you mentioned Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. as being a critical point in mm-hmm. conservative thought. What was it about Barry Goldwater at that particular time that, that uh, sort of gelled the conservative thoughts? Well, until that, until that time, you didn't hear conservatives speak up. Why not? Well, they just, they just didn't. Maybe they felt afraid to. Maybe it was not. Uh, maybe people didn't want to voice unpopular opinions or opinions they feared somebody would think were unpopular and looked down upon, and Barry, Barry Goldwater gave voice to conservatism. You weren't ashamed to voice your mind again. Well, let's move up a little bit to the middle generation. Gilbert Baker, uh, now that you've uh, been involved with the, in the, the state level here in conservative things for f- about four years or so, uh, what is the, the nature of conservatism for the middle generation? For the middle generation, I think it just really boils down to personal responsibility. A, a conservative philosophy uh, toward life, toward government, is going to revolve around personal responsibility, and that can play out. You can see that in tax policy, economics. You know, as you're you're out there trying to raise a family, recognizing that okay, how much of this money is the government going to take, and how much of the money am I going to be left with for my personal responsibility? And with that personal responsibility comes uh, the need for me to to help my fellow man, uh, underprivileged individual, as an individual, as opposed to turning the money over to government and government taking care of that. You can see it in the war, the war on terror. Uh, just to bring it back home there, uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a, a huge issue facing this nation that, that really uh, the future of the nation hinges on our, on our ability to be successful in the war on terror. 
Well, whose responsibility is that? Is it somehow somebody else's responsibility around the world? Or the fact that America was attacked, is that our responsibility to be on the offensive and to deal with this massive threat to our, our very existence? You know, America is strong enough and resilient enough. We could probably rest on our laurels and, and, and live off of our residuals for 10, 20, 30 years. But is that really what we should do? No, we should take personal responsibility. Think about our, our children, our grandchildren, future generations. Our members of the middle generation accepting conservatism uh, sooner than the older generation did. In other words, uh, as uh, Bob Blunt was saying, that as, as a young man, they were kind of wild, if you want to call it that, and, and maybe not so conservative. <clears throat> sure. And again, I, I hate to keep harping on this personal responsibility thing, but you look at the you know, late 60s, 70s, and all the lack of responsibility there as far as just say what you want, do what you want. You know, we're free to do such and such. Well, the freedom in America was based on responsibility. You know, we're free to do a lot of things because we take responsibility for the things we do and say. And uh, that's where I think, be it Ronald Reagan or, or, or President Bush, have done such a good job explaining the fact that, yes, it's about personal responsibility, but with that money I keep, unless taxes say, the, the $1,000 increase in the per child tax credit, that is a huge increase to my generation that have some children at home. I mean, that is huge. But what am I going to do with that money? Is that something I'm supposed to indulge with myself? No. Your active conservative there recognizes that with that money that, that he's able to keep, he or she is able to keep, there's a responsibility there to do the things in community that need to be done. And I see conservatives doing that for my generation across the board. And that's why I'm excited about the future of conservatism. What are the main issues for the middle generation? Making sure that it is a compassionate conservatism. Okay, and I, again, I, President Bush has done a great job of, of making sure, articulating something that we always knew. You know, conservatives get a rap sometimes because they do take personal responsibility seriously of being these hard-nosed, uncaring individuals. And that's so far from the truth. And so that little phrase, compassionate conservative, just really speaks to, to what I already said, that, that uh, yes, we don't believe that government should take all of this money and then redistribute it because they're t very ineffective at doing that. But we do believe that as we are allowed to keep the resources that we have worked for, that we have earned, that we have a compassionate responsibility within our conservatism. So as long as conservatives will keep that focus, then I think there is a, a bright future for uh, conservatives, and I think the movement, as we've already seen, the movement will continue to to prosper and uh, really be the dominant force in politics. What made you a conservative? What you know, I don't know, to be honest with you, because I've been conservative since about the fourth grade. It's Which would weird, be about when? Uh, Barry Goldwater. Okay. Uh, for some reason, and I, I tell the story because it's kind of funny, so, so bear with me, but my parents were not political. I mean, you know, they were just hardworking folks in New Orleans, Louisiana, you know, uh, trying to make a living. I assume they voted, but I'm not even sure they voted. So there was not like a lot of political talk around the table. But I remember being devastated when Barry Goldwater lost. I was in the fourth grade. So, uh, you know, I don't know where that came from. But uh, I've been kind of focused on a conservative agenda and a, a conservative approach on through uh, politics. Actually was, uh, surprisingly enough, very mad at Ronald Reagan. Uh, I was in, at Louisiana Tech in college, and I was mad at Reagan that he ran against Ford because I thought he messed it up. But, uh, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and, and he needed to do that to, to position himself uh, after the fiasco of Jimmy Carter's presidency, of course, to usher in uh, a, a true conservative in the White House and Ronald Reagan. And uh, so I learned my lesson there.
Well, let's jump to the younger generation. Priscilla, you're 21 now. Talking with Bob a few minutes ago here about mm -hmm. being a little wild at the younger ages, they're maybe a little more liberal. Uh, what makes a young person conservative these days? I think maybe I may piggyback a little bit on what uh, Mr. Baker said. But I would say the ability to better ourselves. And what I mean by that is you could, I could piggyback on Mr. Baker's comments on fiscal policy. I believe that each person should be able to, to take what they've earned, have it uh, come back to themselves and be able to spend it as they'd want to. I know that uh, pertaining to my generation, uh, usually we're the ones more with the the minimum wage jobs. Uh, we often have concerns about education and things like that. And I know that President Bush, I really admire his No Child Left Behind Act, mm -hmm. in which he uh, significantly funded programs that, uh, you know, Senator with all respect to Senator Kerry, he really distorted uh, many facts on education. He said that many after-school programs were taken and things like that. But actually, there's been a, a one over one million dollars that's been uh, pumped into education, and even even more so, more importantly, um, you look at. I get uh, Senator Baker also uses the word future. You look at your future. Your education is what's going to secure your future. And I know that that's how I was raised. You know, my parents told me that you've got to get an education, and that's going to get take you to better jobs, and that's going to take you to a better future and things like that. Time for our first break. Our program this evening is a rebroadcast of the 2004 programs on liberalism and conservatism. We'll be right back. I'm Phil Marriage, and our program this evening brings back the liberal and conservative perspectives from the 2004 era of politics. We are first hearing from conservative views from Priscilla Smith, Gilbert Baker, and Bob Blunt, and a little later, the liberal views from Neil Selley, H.L. Moody, and my very special guest, former senator and 1972 presidential candidate, George McGovern. Let's continue. But I'd like to go back, Bob Blunt, here and ask you a question about what you might have noticed in the way of conservative change over time. When you were a young conservative, what, what do you notice that's different about conservatives today as compared to when you were younger? I suppose the greatest, the greatest difference that I, I see is the focus of conservatism's reaction to pressures. I think a lot of conservatives uh, were fairly content to move along with economic issues and that sort of thing in the political scene. And then we began to feel the pressure from the social issues. We began to feel that abortion was something that was a very uncomfortable issue, things like substance abuse, and now we're talking about gay marriage and that sort of thing. I think that makes conservatives uncomfortable, and any time you, you have a political group made uncomfortable, they're going to react to it. And I think that's why you see more conservative movement, you see more force pushback, if you will, uh, from it. And it, it really energizes uh, the conservative base, this, these kinds of issues do. Senator Baker, what do you think about that? If you look at the, the kind of the past and, and, and where we are today, there, there, are just, there are a couple issues that just really, I think, uh, speak to the point of your, of your question. One is, if you look back uh, in the 60s with uh, President Johnson and the war on poverty and the whole approach to welfare and the utter disaster that that was. I mean, it took us you know, 15, 20, 25 years to, to figure out that that was a disaster, but eventually we said this isn't going to work, we threw it out. That was an approach that ran contrary to personal responsibility. It was government responsibility as opposed to personal responsibility. We saw that didn't work. We, you know, we face a challenge today with our in health care and so, the Social Security program. 
And where conservatives, I think, have some real momentum is the fact that if we look back and see the government approach, as we saw in the war on poverty and welfare, do we really want to go down that bigger government approach to the health care crisis that we obviously face and, and the crisis in Social Security? And that's where I think uh, uh, my generation uh, is going to be really drawn to the conservative approach when conservatives talk about health savings accounts and taking personal responsibility for your health care so that you make some of those decisions. You get to keep your money, and if you keep yourself healthy, you know, you get to spend it on other things and not health care. So it's back to personal responsibility. Social Security, same thing. I love it when the president looks in the camera and says, older citizens, Bob, you're in good shape. You know, we're not going to take a dime away from your Social Security. But as we move down to those, to the youngsters, to younger generation, Priscilla, they're going to have some choices, personal responsibility, and they're going to get to benefit from that. So to me, it's just kind of a real difference there. And one other point I'd like to make that, that, that Bob was, um, to follow up with what Bob said, I think conservatism was really born out of this, this whole idea of personal responsibility, but it spoke back in the 50s and maybe in the 60s really to just fiscal policy, you know, just, just monetary kind of stuff, because the nation was much more conservative on social issues back then. There was much more, even if you were a little more liberal in your mindset, when it came to social issues, there was still personal responsibility relating to marriage, relating to children, and some of those. And we went, we came through the 60s where a lot of that personal responsibility in the social areas was thrown out the door. And so all of a sudden, conservatism, which is based in personal responsibility, said, hey, we've got to move into these social areas because that was not in eight in, in the country. And so I think that's where we've gone. Well, Bob mentioned earlier about uh, a time when conservatives weren't willing to speak up or maybe were shy because of whatever reasons. Are you saying that the middle generation had maybe recognized that but decided to speak up? Yeah. Again, I, probably what I'm saying is more in that earlier generation, maybe there wasn't in the social areas quite the need to speak up. But there's a need to speak up now. Social issues were just, you know, the doors open. When we talk about liberals out there actually trying to redefine what marriage is, something that runs just contrary to, to all of culture, you know, that marriage is one man and one woman. When we talk trying to redefine that, it's time for my generation to step up and say, whoa, time out, enough, and we're not going to stand for that anymore. And uh, I'm proud to say that uh, my generation is stepping up. Well, Princella Smith, your generation is, in a few years, will be <laughs> enough numbers of you that you'll be taking over control. Are there mm -hmm. social issues that your generation either accept that are a little more what uh, you might say that are liberal than conservative? Or, or, or do you think that, that, that your generation is going to take on this the conservative? I've been asked this question several times, and people tend to think that just because I'm young or the my peers are young that we're going to take a, a liberal approach that's somewhat of an insult i'm i've kind of i've noticed that people my age uh pay a lot of attention to what's going to affect them now and what's going to affect them in the future um senator baker keeps taking my my <laughs> what i'm going to say here but Your thunder but yeah let's take it on my thunder but let's see if i can piggyback and add some lightning uh the the whole idea of marriage you know i was hosting one candidate in Arkadelphia Monday, and he made a, a profound statement. He said pretty much if you take away marriage, you've pretty much uh, taken away the, the whole foundation of the country. Now, you know, that may sound extreme, but basically it, the family, the base of a family is what makes a nation strong. And when you try to redefine something that's been set since day one of 
of the world, you know, marriage between a man and a woman, a household to, to raise kids in. I think that you've really overstepped some boundaries. Uh, we were talking about social issues, uh, abortion. Um, conservatives value life. Every life is important. I believe the conservatives of my generation, we're, we're very bold in speaking out. We don't uh, bite our tongues for anything, and we're very concerned about our futures and, and our families. And so I want to be sure that when I become of age to have kids, I tell them, yes, I did fight for the institution of marriage. I did fight for life. I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk about something that uh, has, I, I think, probably has changed a lot over time, and that's the media. But Bob Blunt, when you were first, uh, your generation was first becoming aware politically, what effect did the media have on the conservative thoughts or, or politics in general taken from the conservative point of view? Everybody trusted Walter Cronkite. Everybody trusted David Brinkley. We now see that the trust may have been misplaced. Certainly, some other more recent one, Dan Rather, comes to mind. Well, wait a minute. Do you mean that even then that it might have been misplaced? Oh, sure. Sure. We just took for granted because we had three major television networks, and they were it. They were the news. If you didn't read a newspaper, you didn't really get uh, a a good deal of the story. And even then, sometimes, depending on the newspaper you read, I think people are just more thoughtful now. We're aware of and more cynical about the uh, the information that we get from the from the news media. And what's happened is there has been a reaction to that, and the the major networks have created their own competition because of that, because of the awareness that conservatives have that uh, maybe what I'm seeing on uh, the six o'clock news is really not what the truth, the whole story. We see the the proliferation of conservative networks, conservative talk shows, and that sort of thing. Gilbert Baker, what about the media for the middle generation? How do you guys take it? Again, personal responsibility. We saw that it was that there was such a liberal bent in the traditional media that we had for so many years. We finally said, okay, how about Fox News? How about cable? Let's take advantage of cable, the internet. Let's get out there. We've just finally just brought our presence into the marketplace and it is selling like gangbusters and that's where you see that market share in your traditional uh, you know network television is just dropping Fox News is going through the roof because folks yearn for that fair and balanced approach I mean to get both sides of the issue out there hard-hitting in your face and then then we decide you know we decide where we want to go we're not afraid of the truth we're not afraid of, of, of discussing an issue and looking at both sides and everyone, I think, would agree that there was just for so many years such a liberal bent there. And I think we're seeing a major realignment in the media today. Liberal and conservative, America is well served in that because I think we're going to get a much broader perspective and then we'll make the, the decisions that we believe are right. Well, the older generation and the middle generation went from media beginning in the early days of TV, radio, that sort of thing, to, through uh, the middle generation, the 60s and 70s, the younger generation, Priscilla Smith, what does the media mean politically, conservatively, for younger generation members? The media the media means a lot because the, the we're, you know, my generation, we're part of the new fast-paced, you know, go, go, go all the time. And a lot of times the only, the only source of information that we may get it may be from the media, may be the television. Most people, the first thing they want to do is come in and they want to turn, turn on television and see uh, what they're producing. I went to the convention and I, I got interviews from CBS, Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. And I did notice a, a liberal bias in in certain stations, and then 
you know, I got to Fox and I noticed that it was it was pretty balanced or they they tried to make it balanced. But I think uh, one of the things, especially with like the election of 2000, because the line of conservative and liberal is just so fine now. There's I think they show there's only like five percent of people that are that are undecided. I think that's actually forced some stations to have to put forth a more fair and balanced uh, face, especially uh, Mr. Rather on, on CBS. I think he really forced a lot of people to to double check their materials and make sure that they're fair in the way that they're covering uh, the election and any other aspects of news today. Mm-hmm. Well, before we run out of time, I do want to give all three of you a chance to talk about conservatism in the future. Uh, the older generation, uh, Bob Blunt, as you look at the future of conservatism, what do you guys think? Oh, I think it's great. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. Uh, we consider the baby boomers who are now a lot of them middle-aged and and moving on from that. And I think, I think uh, just by the sheer numbers, you'll see more conservatives come out of that. I think as uh, the country uh, deals with the issues that we're facing today, that you'll see conservatism really coming to the fore. I think it's a bright future. I think the, if I can go back to, we we're talking about the media just a little bit, the thing about conservatism that drives liberals wild is a conservative's core values. Their certainty based upon their values after they examine their soul, if you will, on an issue. A liberal has to look at everybody, every, take a poll, take a poll, ask somebody, what's the, what's the majority thing? They don't have the core value. And I think that's what this generation that's coming on has developed. Large numbers, baby boomers. I think the future conservatism is very good. Gilbert Baker, the future. Yeah, I um, think it's a positive future if we'll pay attention because the issues we face are so significant. The failures of liberalism, again, that I referenced in the 60s, early 70s, are so dramatic that given all the facts and, and really considering the issues, I think we will go to a conservative uh, personal responsibility approach, again, to health care, Social Security, and some of these major issues. But we also live, as Princella so articulately said, we live in a very fast-paced, uh, media soundbite uh, time. And if we don't pay attention, if we don't take time to, to look at the issues, uh, then we could fall back into some of those traps that, uh, that were so unsuccessful in the past. So if we'll pay attention, I think conservatism has a very bright future. Well, Prince Ellis Smith, you guys are the future. What's conservatism going to be as you reach into your future years? A very bright future. I'm, I'm an op- optimistic person, so I'm going to give you that answer. We have a very uh, bright future. I'd say, you know, no, no matter wavy uh, America seems to get at times, it's still at the core value of American society is that those that set of values, as Mr. Blunt said, that core set of values, and I just don't see us straying very far from it. Um, especially with, you know, the thing about an American is uh, if you want them to, to get them to do something, just tell them they can't, and they'll show you that they can. And, and so when we get to the, the issues of the social issues, someone tells you they want to take away the definition of marriage. They want to uh, take away that right to life. Just that shows just that gets a rise out of Americans, and they're going to stand for what, what they believe is right. And so I just I really uh, have faith in my generation. Well, liberalism traces its roots back to Tom Paine and his great uh, pamphlet, Common Sense, and to uh, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence. And then it comes on down through Andrew Jackson 
Abraham Lincoln, who, while a Republican, was nonetheless more liberal than most of the Democrats and the Whigs of his day. And it comes on from there through Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, and down to the uh, present time. It's one of the two oldest and most enduring political traditions in American history, conservatism being the other uh, tradition. But practically every forward step in American history from the beginning has been a liberal initiative at first resisted by the conservatives and then in the course of time usually embraced by them. But I think it's fair to say that every public program now generally endorsed by both major political parties had its origins in a liberal initiative over conservative opposition. I think we need both of those traditions. We certainly need liberalism if we're to resolve the central problems before the country. When you were young, were you liberal in your very early days yourself, or when did you realize your tendencies were on the liberal side? Well, I grew up in South Dakota where just about everybody was a, was a Republican, including my dear mother and father. Uh, whether or not they would have voted for me in 1972 when I was running for president, <laughs> if they had been alive, I'm not sure. But I have always thought in that one instance, probably sentiment would have prevailed over logic. I, I became a, a liberal gradually. First, as I watched the progress of this country under the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt, he, le he led us out of the terrible depression, the Great Depression. He led us to victory over the uh, dictators in World War II. And by the end of that war, I had about arrived at a liberal view of things. Well, and your peers, those uh, around your same age group, were they following the same sort of path that, that you found? Or did, as you mentioned earlier, were those around you pretty much on the conservative side? Well, I think that uh, many of the World War II contemporaries of mine, I was a bomber pilot in the war, I think many of those GIs uh, in World War II came back uh, liberals. And uh, the ones that didn't soon moved in that direction under the impact of the GI Bill, which enabled 14 million American uh, soldiers, uh, now veterans, to go to the college of their choice and get a, a college education. I, I took advantage of that to go all the way through Northwestern University to a Ph.D. in American history. And I can tell you by the time I finished that uh, four years at uh, Northwestern under great uh, professors and had my Ph.D., I also had a firm grip on liberalism. What would you say are the main posts of liberalism at that time? Well, the first charter of liberalism was Social Security. That transformed American society and the American uh, economy and provided a measure of economic and social security for the American people that they've been enjoying ever since. That was at first resisted by uh, conservatives who thought it would be too costly. But it turns out that the country has actually gained more from its investment in security than that uh, investment cost. I don't know of any politician who now really would stand up and say, I oppose the Social Security system. Then came Medicare, 
which provided uh, free medical care, hospital care, doctor's care for all Americans over age uh, 65, another major liberal uh, program. Then came things like rural electrification that brought electricity to the farms of America. And then the great civil rights revolution of the 1950s and 1960s, which emancipated uh, black people and other minorities and the women of this country so that they are now first-class citizens. Those are just a few of the great liberal triumphs that make me very proud to claim the liberal heritage. You've been listening to our 2004 programs on liberalism and conservatism, and now we're hearing from the liberals. Neil Selley, H.L. Moody, former Senator George McGovern. Time for our last break, so stay with us. We'll be right back. Let's get back to our 2004 generational discussion from liberals Neil Selley, H.L. Moody, and my very special guest, former Senator and 1972 presidential candidate George McGovern. Well, let's move to the middle generation here with Neil Selling. Uh, Neil, when you came along, uh, these posts of liberalism that uh, Senator McGovern has talked about, were they the issues that your generation also accepted at that time? Uh, we actually grappled with some different issues. I guess we sort of questioned liberalism. It was the time during I grew up in the South, in North Carolina, uh, saw the civil rights movement happening around me and saw the great transformation that it was creating in my community. And the so that was sort of a primary issue for us. And I think the second issue was the Vietnam War. It was precisely that concern that caused many of us to question liberalism and move, I think, to the left, wanting to uh, push for more social programs and a different look at society. So, and it was also the time of other movements that began to emerge uh, following the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay and lesbian movement. And my own organization grew up, uh, was founded in that time and grew out of the welfare rights movement. Well, Senator McGovern, before we get to the younger generation's take, you were middle-aged as uh, Neil Selley's generation was coming on and seeing the Vietnam War, and of course all of us know your involvement with that. How did liberalism uh, take a, a whack at that time from all these issues? Well, it was the liberals that really took us into the Vietnam War. We really became involved there during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Two uh, great presidents, in my opinion, except for the uh, Vietnam uh, tragedy. But it was also the liberals that led us out of Vietnam. The contest between the so-called hawks and doves of the Vietnam period was a contest among Democrats. The Republicans more or less finessed the uh, war issue by saying they were going to follow the commander-in-chief, whoever it was, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican. But the uh, Democrats in the United States Senate and elsewhere across the country divided on that issue with most of the liberals recognizing that the war had been a tragic mistake and leading the fight to get us out of there. That's what my campaign for the presidency in 72 was all about, was to take that war head on and urge an immediate end to American involvement there. From a liberal position. Yes, it was a liberal uh, position. We, of course, were accused of being way out in left field because we challenged a war while it was still uh, in progress. But I've always felt that was uh, the proudest moment 
of the uh, liberal liberals who thought, as I did, that the war was damaging America's national interest, that it was hurting our place in the world, that it was immoral, unconstitutional, and illegal. And we made all those cases against the war, and eventually that side prevailed, and we terminated our involvement there. Well, H.L. Moody, as a 25-year-old member of the younger generation and a liberal, how does this history that we've been talking about today from the other two generations, how does this fit with the younger generation today? I think it applies in a lot of different ways. First of all, what Senator McGovern was just saying about Vietnam and the liberals of that era, I I think that that translates into the current war that we have with Iraq and with the war on terror and that a lot of liberals, myself included, feel that our involvement in Iraq was unnecessary, somewhat illegal. You know, it it has damaged our credibility both at home and abroad. And for those reasons, while we can't completely pull out and everyone realizes that, our involvement there should become more limited. So I do believe that, you know, some of those issues do translate to our own generation. And then, you know, some of them don't, with the exceptions of health care and uh, Social Security. You know, many of the issues that would have been important to either the older or middle generation are becoming less so now. We have an interesting opportunity as young people to decide. There are a lot of questions that have been posed to us, and one of those questions I think fundamentally is whether this country was founded on as a Christian nation or whether this country was founded as a nation that believes in religious freedom. So I think that those are the more fundamental questions that our generation is going to be expected to answer. Well, for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, we're talking about uh, liberalism today here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and our next program will be on conservatism, so you'll get your chance to hear that side too. But my guests with me here are H.L. Moody. We're talking uh, from the younger generation from his perspective. Neil Selly is with ACORN. He's uh, doing the uh, middle generation, and, and that voice that sounds familiar to those of you just tuning in, yes, it is Senator George McGovern joining us from his home there. We're talking about liberalism again. Senator McGovern, I'd like, like to ask you, when you were running for the presidency at that particular time, was there a lot of animosity then between conservatives and liberals in the same way that we have it today? How, how was that field? It, it, it was not as harsh and as strident and as rigidly partisan as it is today. Uh, There was more camaraderie, for example, in the United States Senate than there is today. There was more bipartisan cooperation, particularly on foreign policy, than there is today. I think that one of the disservices that uh, some of the uh, conservative elements have practiced in the last uh, few decades is uh, branding uh, liberals as somehow not quite American, not quite patriotic, not quite interested in strong national defense, not quite interested in taking a strong stand against crime. And liberals have actually been subjected to a barrage of uh, high-powered criticism by every aspect uh, of our political uh, life. I think that's unfortunate. I don't ever go around suggesting that conservatives are un-American or unpatriotic. The conservative movement grows right out of the heart of uh, America. So does liberalism. And we ought to respect uh, both of those traditions. 
but it's just a fact that at least for the last 35 or 40 years, uh, conservatives have unleashed on liberals uh, a shattering uh, array of charges that I think have uh, weakened the whole country, certainly weakened the liberal movement in the United States and made some liberals almost fearful of admitting out loud that they are liberals. Neil Selly, uh, how about the middle generation on this idea of the uh, the war between the liberals and conservatives? Well, I guess there is always, yes, there was animosity when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Our high school was a turbulent ground of people for the war and against the war. But I think that at least we were talking to each other. And there were some conservatives, quite frankly, that I respected and felt that they were very principled. I think these days it's different. And I think with the, particularly the rise of religious fundamentalism, it makes it very, very hard to talk and converse to the other side. H.L. Moody, me and Young, are you guys, how do you guys take the war in of, between the conservatives and liberals? Yeah. Well, I've, I've noticed, especially in this election, we do what's called visibility or honking waves, whatever you want to call it, where you hold up your candidate sign and, and you know, just to, to get that name out there. We've noticed that it's becoming more so every season, it seems, that instead of just when someone sees you holding a sign for a candidate that they oppose, they don't just quietly go by anymore. They're, you know, there's a lot of venom being spewed from the conservative side. They're so territorial and so protective to the point that, you know, we can't just agree to disagree anymore, and we can't just quietly have our own opinions. It's, um, it's gotten to the point where if you don't agree with the conservatives in this country. Just like you said, you are un-American. And I'd like to point out that I can't think of anything more American than dissent. I I've, was always taught in school that it was not only my right, not only my privilege, but it was my duty to question the leaders of my country and to make a good, solid decision about where I was going to cast my vote. And I feel like uh, our generation especially has been discouraged from asking those questions because the conservative leaders fear the answers to those questions. Well, I'd like to talk about liberalism in the future before we run out of time here. Uh, Senator McGovern, where do you see liberalism in the future? Well, I think uh, every major problem before the country uh, is going to require a strong and active liberal movement if it's to be solved. We're not going to solve the health care crisis in this country without what is called a liberal solution, one that covers all Americans, that is generous in its uh, benefits, and uh, that, of course, is going to require a triumph of uh, another liberal uh, initiative. I think the same thing is true with the environment. Now, frankly, on the environment, we used to have great uh, conservatives who uh, championed the environment. That was in the days when we called it conservation. The term environment has come into being as a public term in the last 25 or 30 years. But in the days of Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican president, but a great champion of conservation, of protecting the public lands, the public parks, the national forests, the open spaces, the waterways. Uh, he led that fight as a uh, Republican president. 
I wish we had the same thing working in our society today. But there again, I think if we're to do what we need to do to safeguard our air and water and land, it's probably going to be a fight that's led by the uh, liberals. The funding of education, that's a crisis in every community in America. It's a crisis in almost every college and university. We don't have enough funding uh, going into the schools of this country to provide high-quality education uh, for all of our students and for all of our teachers. There again, the liberals are probably going to have to carry the ball on that uh, education fight. I think we need a more liberal foreign policy, one that uh, cooperates with the United Nations, one that seeks to deal uh, more vigorously with the problems of world hunger and poverty and disease. Those are all things, by the way, that in my opinion feed the anger and the terrorist impulse uh, that threatens our, our security. But there again, uh, a foreign policy of the kind I've just described is going to be one where the liberals will have to take the lead. And that's why I think it would be a, a big loss to this country if liberalism is intimidated, if liberalism is uh, discredited in the eyes of the public in a way that uh, hampers its successes. Neil Selley, middle generation on the future of liberalism. Well, I think if the progressive strand of our tradition is to survive, the way it will survive is if people organize. And I think that the the reforms we want in the 30s and the 40s and post-war era came out of organizing of the union movement and organization of ordinary people based on issues that they care about. And so I think on health care, we have to do community organizing. We have to build a constituency that can push for those reforms. I think on, I agree with Senator McGovern, on foreign policy, we are now citizens of the world. And our foreign policy has to change to reflect that. And we need an America that stands up for American values, freedom and democracy, and not occupying countries and not wars based on lies. And I think the only way that's going to change is if people begin to organize be right at the grassroots, at the local level, and connect together at a national level. And then all of that has to be expressed politically through voting, through, uh, and I think one of the problems, one of the major reforms that we need to do is to look at how ordinary folks can gain access to the political system, whether it's looking at campaign reform again. I think McCain-Feingold may be a disaster, actually. I'm not sure what I think of it. But there has to be a fundamental way for to limit corporate influence in politics and to so that ordinary folks' voices can be heard again. H.L. Moody, younger generation in the future, liberalism. Well, I agree with both the senator and with Neil, um, so I don't want to get into a tangent about that. I, I will say that as far as my generation is concerned, I think that the worst thing that could happen to my generation of liberals is that we allow ourselves to be defined by the conservatives 
or even by past generations of liberals. And, and that even extends into the media, present company excluded. We live in a country where our media suffers from attention deficit disorder. They can't manage to get to the bottom of anything, and it started with Clinton. It's never been more apparent than with President Bush. You know, they, they can't seem to get to the bottom of anything. We haven't gotten any coherent answers out of the media in the last at least four years. So I think that the, the best thing other than organizing that young liberals can do is to educate themselves on issues, to truly have a well-formed opinion about that, to be able to share that opinion with others, and to not be so steadfast in your opinion that it can't change. If I make an argument and someone else has a better argument and it makes more sense to me, then instead of sticking with what I know doesn't work, I should just change my argument. So I, I think that that's the approach that we should take in the future is uh, of, of really being self-defining and, and deciding what issues are important to us and fighting for those issues because ultimately, at the end of the day, one day our, my generation will be running this country. Mm-hmm. And it, that's why it's so important now that we get involved, that we get organized, and that we at least have an opinion. Well, we've been talking about liberalism today here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow on Little Rock at KUAR and Fayetteville at KUEF. And my guests have been from the uh, younger generation, H.L. Moody. He's a 25-year-old activist with the Democratic Party, a field organizer from the 2nd Congressional District. Neil Selly, who is the head organizer for ACORN here in in Arkansas, an association of community organizations for Reform Now. And our special guest joining us from his home in uh, uh, South Dakota, George McGovern, the 1972 presidential candidate for the Democratic Party and a person who is well-respected around our country for his part in uh, service to the country. Uh, Senator McGovern, thanks for joining us here today on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. It's my pleasure. We wish you the best. I do hope you've enjoyed this time to compare where liberalism and conservatism were in 2004 compared to our current politics. I think you would agree that the rhetoric was much cooler then than now. I wonder what another 20 years will bring to this very same discussion. My guests have been conservative Priscilla Smith, Gilbert Baker, and Bob Blunt, as well as our liberals Neil Selley, H.L. Moody, and my very special guest, former Senator and 1972 presidential candidate George McGovern. Before we sign off today, I want to share with you a few changes in the future of our program here on KUAR. For the last 20 years, we've been compiling an archive of over 275 unique topics covering a huge range of interests. During that time, we have, from time to time, re-aired several, but we have not updated any with a fresh current generational makeup. That was always the goal of the program, to be able to look back and compare any changes from the advance of time. So, going forward, I will begin the process of revisiting those 20-year-old topics, bringing some of those thoughts mixed in with a fresh panel of guests and their thoughts. In addition to that change, another unintended change has resulted from the impact COVID-19 has had on our ability to do studio recordings. We simply cannot subject my guests to the smaller studio settings. So, our new programming will use the Zoom technology, which will be much safer for all concerned. A benefit from that method will allow my guests to visually see each other no matter where they may be. That alone should be a welcome advantage. So continue to listen as we update our topics. You, too, over the last 20 years have moved up a generation, just as I was in the middle generation and now am firmly in the older generation. 
I do thank all of you for your listening support of our program. And as I always say, we still are the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock. You can find our podcasts online at KUAR.org under Programs and send your comments to YTT at KUAR.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.